0: We return to Bringing Light into Darkness Monday News and Analysis with our special guest, author, and investigative reporter, Jeremy Kuzmarov, as we discuss the costs of war and the profiteering of war. In your article, you also talk about an executive order that allowed, back in 1981, I'm just going to read it from your article, in 1981, Executive Order 12333, gave U.S. intelligence agencies the right to enter into contracts with private companies for authorized intelligence purposes, which need not be disclosed. It seems like before this period of time, we were involved in imperial endeavors in order to put governments in power that would let business interests come in, multinationals come in, and really take the resources or enter into business relationships in which they just made a killing and paid People barely a, a survival of payment for their work and that type of thing. Now that still continues, I presume, for sure, but the act of the war itself has, they discovered, can be very profitable. So it's not even that you have to win a war, it's by just having the war. Some companies are making incredible amounts of money and it helps to explain what the Afghan papers showed, right? That we were losing that war for decades and everyone knew it, but nobody would report it. And I believe it was not being reported because those that own the great wealth of our nation are part of the same class of individuals that were making a profit whether we win or lose at war. In other words, if profits were not to be made, then the fact that we were losing the war would have been reported everywhere ad nauseum. This is the character of a nation that's driven by profiteering rather than right over wrong. So I guess my question for you is those two, this 1981 executive order and this transition into this privatization of the military, I can remember in Nicaragua that in the 1920s, as you study that period where Gusto Sandino led the uprising against the U.S. occupation and and Marines. And Marines were coming back in body bags. And that was no good then, just as it was no good at any time in our history. With respect to ensuring that the American public was not against the war. And so as a result, we started to transition from sending our troops down to these countries in Central and Latin America to creating a school of Americas where we would train countries' own military and just inundate them with all these monies and loans and that type of thing where we would train to carry out these dirty deeds. So the people that died were Nicaraguans fighting Nicaraguans rather than the United States Marines. You mentioned and allude to some of that in your article, but can you talk a little bit about this transition that occurred from the 20s, straight them up to today in order to do exactly what your introductory remarks mentioned, use proxies and special forces and drones and basically not put U.S. forces at risk that might draw attention from the U.S. public.
1: Exactly, and unfortunately, the American public tunes out and really doesn't care if it's not Americans being killed. Right. Uh, and that was one of the lessons of Vietnam. I mean, the main reason... The Vietnam anti-war movement was so strong was because young people and particularly, you know, middle upper class people who were going to, you know, colleges or kids were in, you know, in college, they were being, you know, they were subject to the draft. Their, uh, part of my line was, you know, their ass was on the line. So they were really paying attention and they saw that that's, a you know, war they didn't want to risk their lives for. But if it's outsourced the way you described, they don't care and there's no protest and the US government can do what they want. And actually I go back to the Philippines before Nicaragua, uh, nineteen hundred, you know, the in the Spanish American Philippine War, the US colonized the Philippines and was fighting the nationalist movement led by Emiliano Aguinaldo and they committed legions of atrocities and it actually got back to the US public, kinda like the Abu Ghraib scandal. There were revelations of the water torture, uh, they were publicized in US newspapers and the US public got angry and wanted to withdraw uh US troops and there was a uh growth of the anti imperialist league, uh which was kind of like the anti Vietnam War movement that wanted an end to that war and said you yeah, know the United States should be a republic, not an empire. So the you know power elite of that era decided the strategy to withdraw U.S. troops because it had become a very unpopular war in the Philippines, like Vietnam. But they left a residual force, like you were describing Nicaragua. The same strategy, the Philippines they left a residual force to train the Philippine constabulary. And yeah, readers, can, I can recommend the book by Alfred McCoy called "Police in America's Empire," which is about the story of the Filipino constabulary. A small number of the yeah, American soldiers stayed behind, developed this constabulary to continue to you know complete the pacification of the nationalist movement and there were these um, peasant rebels, some were uh, religious uh, messianic uh, peasants that were resisting the u uh, s led government. And so this Filipino constabulary did the dirty work of pacifying them, and also went after the muslim the Muslim uh, community the Moros that were resisting, but so they committed a lot of gruesome atrocities, but still they you were know, the Filipinos, and the American public was paying less uh, and less attention uh once the American troops were primarily withdrawn so the familiar story of that strategy was seen as successful because the u s established neo-colonial control in the Philippines, and they gradually Filipinized the government, but it was a government that served American interests, American economic interests, and sustained U.S. military bases and a coaling station because the U.S. was interested in accessing the China market and, and you know, evolving into a Pacific power to rival European colonial empires. So the Filipino government basically catered to U.S. interests, it was a very successful policy.
0: This is about the
1: Philippines.
0: The, this is the 18- and They
1: replicate that in Nicaragua and Haiti.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me ask you is this like the 1898 period? Is that about the right, the Philippines? Yeah,
1: well, the, the Spanish American Philippine War was from 1898 to 1902. Mm-hmm. And initially, the U.S. controlled the Philippines, mm-hmm. and the, the governor general was William H. Taft, who later became American president. But then they withdrew U.S. troops, yeah, because there was outcry in the United States of these atrocities. And you had the Anti Imperialist League, which is a fairly formidable force, even stronger than the Vietnam anti war movement. It included some senators, and Mark Twain was part of it. And yeah, they were really very critical of of the war there. So the U.S. government, again, withdrew the troops, left a small number to train the constabulary. And they gradually Flippinized the government, but they put in place like proxies, Filipino Mm -hmm. proxies of the United States, and the Constabulary supported those leaders.
0: Very good. Well, listen, I just want to remind folks that we are visiting with Jeremy Kosmorov. He's the managing editor of (laughs) Covert Action Magazine, author of a number of books, and historian. He actually... I'm not sure if you're still teaching, but you were an assistant professor of history at the University of Tulsa some time ago. And this historical context is so interesting to me and so important, because without that, we continue to be very ignorant of things that we should be conscious of in order to reel in our government's foreign policy impact. So, number one, it's almost like the manufactured unconscious racism in our country, because by keeping the American public distanced from these wars by not having U.S. casualties or trying not to. What we've already indicated is that millions of people are dying in these different conflicts, yet they're not Anglo-Saxon people, so we're not apparently that concerned about it. Whether that's conscious or unconscious is really not that important. It's the fact that the killing goes on and on and on without any types of, of accountability. In your article, you also talked about in October of 2005 that the Pentagon granted legal immunity from prosecution to certain of these contractors and particularly security groups. Tell us a little bit about Blackwater and DynCorp and the whole issue of us removing ourselves from accountability in Iraq, in Afghanistan, anywhere in which we are contracting or exerting bellicose policies.
1: Well, firstly, yeah, I mean, those companies operate with a lack of public oversight. And then, unfortunately, you know, the, the military, you know, soldiers have committed a lot of atrocities, and often they can get away with it, but the, there is a military code of conduct. And if soldiers wantonly kill civilians, they are charged, uh, you know, subject to court-martial and to system of military justice. And there's, you know, some more transparency. You know, they do have to answer to the American public. But these companies, you know, are private entities, and they're very secretive. They don't release their, their records, and they're not really subject to the same code of standards. And the law, really, they they operate with impunity, essentially, above the law. And there's been very little prosecution for criminal activity, that members of these companies have carried out. I mean, there was a case where some of the Blackwater operatives were charged with murder. Uh, I believe they were exonerated or pardoned, so they, they spent very limited amount think of jail time. They were a th- small number.
0: I think they were pardoned in 2007.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think Trump pardoned them. or So, you know, so, right. you know uh, I mean, Blackwater committed many atrocities in Iraq. Uh, some were documented by WikiLeaks and some of the videos they released there was maybe one or two cases of prosecution and and they were pardoned so then like Dinecard been involved in the sex trade in Bosnia and you know, there was a whistleblower and I think he was the one who got fired. I don't even think the employees who were involved in the sex trade faced any censure. Mm-hmm. And the company, you know, the only person they fired was the whistleblower. And they were like hiring twelve year old girls as their personal sex slave or something in Bosnia. You know, in Afghanistan, they were linked to um, the sex trade as well, Dyncor, and they never faced any accountability, so just get away with
0: it. Right, and when you talk about things like Abu Ghraib that lifted the curtain back to kind of see some of these inhumane types of atrocities, in your article, though, also, there's an old company that caught my attention, and I wanted you to elaborate on them a little bit, but it was under the Bush administration, they hired... Companies that you wrote with known links to human rights abuses, such as Wackenhut Services, Inc., even connected to you, right, training desk squad outfits in Central America during the 1980s. Can you tell us a little bit more about these contractors and the lack of humanity that so many of these entities exhibited?
1: Yeah, well, that was a notorious company. And yeah, in some way, it goes back to the era of, like, the Pinkertons. you know, labor, un- a lot of labor unrest in the United States and strikes. The companies would hire private intelligence groups like Pinkerton to spy on the unions. Mm-hmm. And some had, you know, mafia kind of thugs who worked for them. So, and I think Wackenhut, his history, goes back a long way into the Cold War years where they were involved with surveillance operations during the Cold War. So yeah, there there's some of these companies with a long, unsavory history that continue to operate in some of these foreign theaters. Again, it's part of capitalism, really. It's history, the, the ugly side, where you know big business will do everything to suppress labor rights, and, and in the past have hired, you know, private companies to do the dirty work. So I think these companies are just kind of continuing that tradition, and some of these companies were involved like in South, you know, the South African apartheid regime when they were crushing uh, rebellions like in Angola and Namibia. You know, some of these private companies had their origins in that era, and especially when the apartheid government collapsed, uh, some of the veterans of the South African army formed companies that did work in like Sierra Leone. Civil War in the 90s, mm-hmm. and they were you know, very unsavory people with, with ties to white supremacy and a history of atrocities against uh, black nationalist groups in Africa.
0: Yeah, you wrote the Bush administration hired companies with known links to human rights abuses, such as Wackenhut Services Incorporated. After training death squad outfits in Central America during the 1980s, Wackenhut got into the private prison industry running a facility in Gina, Louisiana, that according to the Justice Department, quote, failed to provide reasonable safety or adequate medical care, end quote, and one in Santa Fe where guards abused and raped female inmates, which you footnote that source as well. I guess I just want to come back to wherever we turn, it seems like the privatization of services, whether it's prison services that never were privatized until they were privatized, or privatizing these military groups and that type of thing, at the end of the day, the privatization ends up making extraordinary amounts of money for the companies that own these deals. But it leaves the U.S. taxpayer and the U.S. taxpayers, namely the American citizens, in the lurch. In that, it is their monies, essentially, that are being stolen, and being reappropriated privately. Can you explain that a little bit more about this privatization as this key kind of neoliberal method of squeezing more and more profits out of things that really should not be anything about profit, but should be just basically service-oriented duties that a responsible population should be monitoring?
1: Yeah, I think these, you know, when you, when you look into this stuff, it really challenges. The narrative we heard for so many years about, you know, private corporations are more efficient than governments and will do things, you know, more efficiently. But I think we see the dark side here is that there's no oversight and accountability. I mean, government, yes, there could be problems with government agencies and institutions, and yes, sometimes they're cumbersome bureaucracies, and sometimes they also carry out abusive practices, but at least there's more transparency and oversight and public accountability and the public pressure of the government. The government usually has to reveal information about what they're doing to the public. So I think the, the, it can work better. I mean, these abuses can more easily be rooted out when, than when you have private companies who are operating very, very secretly, are not transparent, are not really accountable. So we'll not release the information. So we we don't often know what's going on unless something you know disastrous or there's a lawsuit or something. A lot of this information, I think, came to light because of lawsuits against these companies. But I think, yeah, it's also a sign of the other immorality, of like the Bush administration, that they would you know, completely disregard these past record of abuse. I mean, well, Bush himself was kind of, you know, I mean, a psychopath and, you know, comes from that wing of the GOP that, I remember Rick Perry was, like, bragging about how many people he'd killed in Texas. And, I mean, they from all the extremely harsh Criminal justice standard in the state of Texas, you know Bush and Rick Perry, and so it was almost like a badge of honor. If the Texas prisons uh, were places of uh, horrible, you know, human rights abuses uh, and atrocities by the guards, and these are the kind of people they're taking into Iraq, and they're kind of proud of it. And you know, there's a book I read called Texas Tough, and you know, there's kind of macho cowboy ethic. Uh, They take it too far that they're basically supporting uh, major atrocities and proud of it. Mm -hmm. And that's the people they want to bring into Iraq. So, I mean, these are kind of psychopaths running the U.S. government.
0: And I had a couple more questions for you with the five or six minutes that we have left, Jeremy. And let me just remind folks that we are visiting with the author, investigative journalist, and managing editor of Covert Action Magazine, Jeremy Kosmarov. So I just want to go back to this 2005 citing that you had in your article that the Pentagon granted legal immunity from prosecution to these types of Blackwater and Dynacore entities, that type of thing. First of all, how, when you're working in a third country, can you grant immunity to anything or anybody? You know, the the hubris involved in such a claim, the insanity of it is much more evident if you flip the script. Say a foreign country had military forces in our country on the border and committed crimes against our women citizens or others, yet they were immune from prosecution. Can you explain that a little? Um, well,
1: it's a colonial mentality I mean, if you look at the British Empire in China when they won the opium wars, you know, they were able to push through measures that British citizens if they committed a crime in China wouldn't be subject to Chinese law and could, you know, basically get away with it. So, mm-hmm. I mean I think it just reflects the colonial mentality and, and the fact that we're still living in, in a colonial era and the United States the heir of the European colonial empires and asserts these privileges to it's soldiers and uh, people who are uh, overseas. So, And it's just a way that they could, yeah, they could basically do whatever they want in, in the country, and the laws are rewritten to, to guarantee their impunity.
0: Yeah, you know, and, and it occurs to me, as you're saying that, you know, President Obama was pushing the TPP, what, the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal, in which all of these meetings were secretive, and behind closed doors, they were trying to create a structure where if you owned a company, Jeremy, or I owned a company and went into a third country and uh, they started putting on these, you know, pollution restrictions or this or that, I could petition not to the country, but to some corporate board under the TPP framework that would be the ultimate ruling authority over the sovereignty of a country that eventually did not manifest itself, but not for a lack for trying, I think, because that kind of came out. But here, you know, you have our most progressive president, so I do think it's really instructive. If Within our most progressive president's administration, we already indicated how he gave Saudi Arabia these tens and tens of billions of dollars, greatest human rights violators in the whole world. thing, And then you have these stories about removing the accountability and, and violating the sovereignty of a country, yet promoting it as some type of free trade agreement that's going to be good for everyone when, of course, that's not the case. I was going to ask you to speak to that, and then finally, in your concluding remarks, can you also speak to what you mentioned in your article, the congressional investigation along the lines of the The 1930s, the Nye Commission on Corporate War Profiteering and, you know, some of the other congressional findings and what they revealed. So if the American public wants to get a better idea and insight into these corruptive elements of the history that we're speaking about, that they can do so by picking up a book on those commissions. Can you speak to that as well?
1: Sure, yeah, and and on the point of the TPP, yeah, I think, you know, you hit on it, you know, as far as the colonial aspect, where countries are ceding their sovereignty to corporations, and that's, you know, modern-day colonialism right there, and that was, you know, a key feature of the classic colonial era, is that regions, you know, are ceding their sovereignty, so it was, I think you Meant, you know, highlighted very well that TPP was you know kind of a colonial document that would you know, empower corporations, and it didn't ultimately go forward. And that's what we see. You know, these private military contractors are uh, the ultimate you know, triumph of these huge you know military defense corporations, and you know taking over previous state functions. And then, as far as the Nye Committee, yeah, that it's something you know that should be remembered today you know, as a, a model of what we—I mean—we desperately need new, a new Nye Committee. The original Nye Committee, yeah, was led by Senator Gerald Nye, who is, they called them isolationist, more or less. I think anti-imperialist and anti-war, because you know many after the First World War were deeply disillusioned with that war and didn't want the United States to be involved in any in, in other major wars. And, you know, Nye led this commission in the early 30s to investigate war profiteering in World War One, And he looked specifically at the role of J.P. Morgan because the Morgan banking interests had floated loans to Britain and France, and they wanted repayment on their loans, so they began lobbying for Wilson to send U.S. troops into the Great War. When Wilson, in, in 1916, actually campaigned on a peace platform the platform was he kept uh, his slogan, he had buttons, you know, he kept us out of the war. And then uh, six months later, he sent U.S. troops after he won the election. And so the Nye Committee was looking at Morgan, those loans, and how that got the U.S. enmeshed in the war, because you know Morgan wanted, needed the Allied Britain and France to win, so they would repay the loans. And he was lobbying for U.S. intervention behind the scenes. And there other war profiteers they investigated, like the uh, DuPont uh, Corporation, which manufactured you know gunpowder, and uh, made a killing off World War I. So they were a the target of the investigation and there was the uh, Winchester Arms Company, and there was Cleveland Dodge, who was a major donor, to Woodrow Wilson, his friend from Princeton, who made a fortune in the war in copper mining. So this was a, a focal point for the Nye Committee to shed light on how these millionaires and billionaires made huge profits off the war, where, in which 100,000 Americans died, mm-hmm. and how they also lobbied the government, and I think Nye proposed the nationalization of the industry. The only solution would be to take the profit out of the war and that, and to nationalize the industry as a way to control it. And that should be under proposal today, but we don't have any politicians
0: even, advocating right, that position. Even mentioning it. Well, listen, Jeremy, we are out of time, and I just want to remind folks that we've had the great privilege of visiting with Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's the managing editor of Covert Action magazine. I, I just can't tell you... The depth of history that you bring forth in your articles and on the radio here is really powerful. And that's how you solve these riddles is by getting to the truth of history and then learning from it. But when we're taught false history, then everything that we base all that on is going to be off kilter as well. But listen, before I let you go, if people want to follow your work and articles, how would they access your work?
1: Uh, well, they can go to my website com. There's also a peace history website that I uh, contribute to. The essay like on World War One, where we discussed the Nye Committee. That's um, peace history. Actually, I, I don't have it off the top of my head. but Roger Peace is the author. If you Type in google roger peace uh, Peace history you come up with a website and then uh, at covert action magazine www. covert action magazine dot com uh, you'll find all our articles we do have some historically based articles as well as covering contemporary events and we're also looking for new writers and new story ideas,
0: so Very we good. welcome
1: hearing from you. My email is uh, jkuzmarov2 at gmail.com.
0: Outstanding. Well, thank you so much for uh, making time to visit with us today. And I look forward to having you back on in the, in the future and following your work. So thank you, Jeremy, so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay. We look forward to learning together into the future. See you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the Internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with Co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Naivety.